Hey there, fans. Welcome to the Mental Park Podcast, where we focus on real people, real issues, and real talk. I'm Carla Hutcherson. I'm a licensed professional counselor, and I am the director for the Hannah for Hope Foundation. And I'm Brandy Mock, an executive board member for Hannah for Hope. We are here to talk about all things mental health, whether it's daily stress, academic pressure, work and career issues, managing a diagnosis, or suicidal and self-harm behaviors. We want this to be a space of non-judgment, honest talk, and destigmatizing mental health issues. Today, we'd like to introduce you to Elizabeth Abrams. Elizabeth, thanks for being here today. We are so excited to have you here and just learn about your experience with mental health and um, where you've gone along this journey. Tell us a little bit about what, who you are. Give us a little background of who Elizabeth Abrams is. Oh, God. Uh, I'm Elizabeth Abrams. I'm 26. Um, I like to read books. I'm a big fan of dogs. Uh, I have a lovely collection of mental health issues. Um, the Lord made me and said, God forbid, give, give her all of them. So that's fun. Um, I was born and raised in Wiley, Texas. Um, both my parents are teachers. I have a brother and a sister, three nieces and a nephew. Sure, that feels good. Okay. No, no, it's great. It's great. So as we start talking, kind of tell me about what, when you noticed something was going on in your life that was a little off. Yeah, so... About fourth grade, I started to feel different than all of my friends. Um, You know, most elementary school students are very happy-go-lucky and just having a great time, and I was just kind of stressed. Um, And then in fifth grade, um, I just started having, I I started having panic attacks and anxiety, and my first bout of depression was in fifth grade. Um... I specifically remember um, my dad and I used to do something called Donate Fr- Donut Fridays. Uh, we would go get donuts, and then we would sit in the parking lot of my school and just, like, people watch and trash talk a little bit. <laughs> I th- love that. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> like, trash talk for a fifth grader, but trash talk. And I don't remember... I don't think anything really happened. I just all of a sudden got really upset, and I started just crying. And I ran into the school, and our uh, I think she was my school counselor at the time. She was welcoming everyone in the door, and she took me in her office and just, like, couldn't console me. And so I spent, like, the first half of the day there just upset. Um, and it kind of just went from there. Yeah, I hear a lot of kids who come in my office for counseling, and I, I hear those same kind of stories, and they really see think them, that they're weird or that yeah. something's wrong with them, and they don't really understand that it could be a diagnosis of some sort. Yeah, and, you know, nobody, especially in fifth grade, like, you don't talk about that. Mm-hmm. You don't really talk about your feelings and your emotions and, you know, how that affects you and why you're crying, or you just don't cry in public so nobody knows you're crying so it's not very um I didn't have anyone to talk to about it because I thought something was wrong with me and you know being raised in a small town you didn't talk about your flaws so I didn't tell anyone I thought something was wrong with me because I didn't want them to know that something was wrong with me now do you think your parents as educators do you think your parents knew something was going on about that time? Or if they did, did they say anything to you or give you any indication that? Um, I was considered moody 
And it was normally, like, it was kind of just thrown towards, like, the hormones aspect of, like, being a, a preteen girl. Um, my, I love my family. They're amazing. They're wonderful people. Uh, when I would get overly upset, my brother and sister would chant to me, uh, what is it, like, Everybody, I hate everybody. Everybody hates me. I guess I'll just go eat dirt. And they would just chant that. (laughs) They would just chant that to me. And it didn't, like, affect me as a kid because, like, you know, your older siblings are bullies. Like, it's what they're – you were prepared for life because your siblings bullied you. Like, I – I that's what I think. It it helped kind of get through those hard times of people saying things to you. Yeah. And so I was just considered as being – you know, overly emotional preteen. So you went through elementary, you noticed something, you know, was off at a young age, and then you get to middle school. Tell me about your middle school days. That's fifth and sixth grade, right? Or is that what we're throwing? Like like six six through eight? eight. Okay, so fifth and sixth grade was just like weird. Like it was just, you know, you're coming into your own and starting your period and Learning about tampons. Like, that was fifth and sixth grade. (laughs) With, yes, tampons. Um, And then in seventh and eighth grade, um, so my elementary school fed into the intermediate school. But then um, my dad started at Wiley East High School. So he wanted me to go to Wiley East High School. And my intermediate school fed into the junior high that split up between high schools so he thought it would be better for me to go to the junior high that fed into the high school so I would know more people and be acclimated and have good friends whatever so seventh grade I moved to a school of people that I never met before in my entire life um maybe a few of them I might know I remember, but for the most part, like, I didn't know any of them, and this was in seventh grade. Mm-hmm. Um, so I moved, and it was not great. Um, it wasn't terrible. I, I think I'm a really nice bubbly person. I try really hard to be interactive, but also I got a haircut right before I started seventh grade, and I looked like Coconut Head, and I'll have to show you who Coconut Head is. <laughs> He's a, a character in um, the TV show Ned's Declassified, Ned's Declassified School Survival Guide. And it's essentially a nerdy kid that looks like he's had a coconut sat on top of his head and then cut off right here. For all you out there, go to YouTube and look <laughs> up Coconut Kid. <laughs> but it wasn't a great start. Um, I made some friends, and long story short, they ended up bullying me and ostracizing me and um, posting about Facebook about me and creating Facebook pages and posting pictures of me and saying mean things about me, and it was really tough. Um, And so that really, like, started everything for me. Like, it was already a struggle, and then going through a situation where I don't know anyone, and I think I've made really good friends, and then those friends, like, destroy me and my social life. Like, nobody at school would talk to me. Nobody would, like, come near me. It was just not fun. 
Now, were you able to go home and talk to your parents at the time, or was that just kind of a time in your life that you're like, I'm not going to go home and tell my parents anything? Um, I didn't tell them. I'm. They kind of knew. Like, I, I suddenly wasn't hanging out with these group of girls that I hung out with all the time. So, like, they knew something was up. Um, but they found out when one day, you know, we had a family computer. You only had one computer in the house. It was huge. Um, and I got on Facebook on the computer and I was looking at the Facebook page where they were talking about me and I got upset and just like left the room and I didn't close out the Facebook page. And so then my dad came and he saw the Facebook page and he printed the Facebook page out and, uh, was like, all right, tell, like, tell me what's going on. Um, and we went to the houses of those girls. He knocked on the door and he asked to speak to the parents and he handed it to them. And he essentially said, you fix this or I will fix this. Wow. Wow. That's some parent involvement. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A lot of times kids hold all that in and their parents never find out. Are you glad that your dad did those things? Oh yeah. Because I never would have, I never would have stood up for myself. You know, in seventh grade, I never would have stood up for myself in that way. Um, and I think also those girls never would have learned that what they were doing is wrong um, if they hadn't have been told by a superior person that they looked up to, like, this is a problem. Because they did later on in life, every single one of them came back to me and, like, deeply and sincerely apologized which that's, is... That's incredible. Yeah. And I, you know, I forgive them wholeheartedly. We were in seventh grade. Like, you just don't, you just don't know. There are so many kids out there getting bullied who don't get that resolution. Yeah. And that's really tough. That's yeah. tough to deal with all by yourself. Yeah, I can't absolutely. even imagine the pain that you felt, but you had a resolution. Mm -hmm. And imagine not ever getting that. And it was, I mean, it was really nice and it was very important in my growth as a person, um, but I, I haven't, I mean, I've been bullied plenty of times since then and haven't gotten that forgiveness, but it, not forgiveness, um, apology, um, and it's been, you know, it, it kind of does make a difference, but it helps you reconcile yeah, probably, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. That is just, I mean, amazing that your dad was able to do that. And mm -hmm. it's, it's just a message out there for parents to really understand. Know what your kids are going through. And the social media, don't be afraid to look at your kids' social media. Understand uh, what's going on on social media because they need you to be their yeah. advocate. They need you to be an advocate. But I think it is a very, um, there is a very specific way to do it. Like the way my dad did it, he didn't involve me mm -hmm. and he didn't involve the girls. Right. He involved the parents. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't in like a public setting. It wasn't in an inappropriate way. It wasn't rude. It wasn't aggressive because he knew these parents. Like we yeah. went to church with them. Yeah. Um, it, so it was, it was more of a, like a, like a low key, like you handle this. So it wasn't embarrassing. Yeah. And another point in that is not only be an advocate for your kids and know what's on their social media, but also know the parents of your kids' yeah. friends. That's really I important that's to important. have a relationship. Yeah. So that you can watch out for each other and have that relationship where you can talk to them. Yeah. I want to take you into high school, kind of talking about the development of your mental health and what that looked like for you. So 
High school was a hot mess. I mean, whose high school isn't a hot mess? Um, you know, I, you know, quote unquote, I'll say quote unquote, fell in love multiple times and like had my heart broken and like best friends did me dirty and all of that. Um, but I wasn't really open about my mental health uh, for most of high school. Um, my dad taught at my high school and we were very much expected to be the Abrams. Like the Abrams are like stand up, good Southern Baptist Christians with no issues and no problems and nothing is wrong. Um, so it was very much assumed um, that I shouldn't talk about that. And did, the, did that add extra pressure to you knowing that that was yeah. how everything laid out? Oh, yeah. Baptist family. Father was a principal. I mean, there was teacher. a... A teacher, I'm sorry. Yeah. There was an expectation there that you felt like you had to meet. Yeah, and I had to be, you know, like a straight-A student and, um, you know, a good person and not rude to anyone and dress a certain way and, I mean, follow the dress code, I guess. But there were a lot of expectations, and those teachers put those expectations on me. I had multiple teachers that would say, I don't really know what I did, but multiple teachers on multiple different occasions would say, you know, either you're an Abrams, I expected better from you, or you're a Christian, I expected better from you, or, you know, you're this, that, and the other, like, you should be better. And it's like, I was never doing anything, like, I wasn't you're being, being a terrible, kid. I was yeah. being a teenager. Yeah. A lot of the times, too, though, I had a problem with, um, like, authority and I have a hard time giving you respect if you're not going to respect me. And that's still an issue I have to this day. Like, if you're not going to show me respect, then I'm not going to show you respect. Like, that, I feel like that's fair. But as a 16-year-old, it's not great. So teachers would be disrespectful to me, and I would kind of, like, call them out on it. And then they would just say, you know, you can't speak that, that way to me. You're an Abrams. I'm like, I get it, but... So it was almost hard for you to find your own identity or to really... And that's a, a big part of being a teenager is really identifying who you are and who you want to be. Yeah, absolutely. That you had all these expectations of you. Yeah. So you had to fall in line, but you weren't really able to express yourself the way you wanted to. Yeah. And, you know, it also goes into... I was very heavily involved with our church, um, which... A big thing at the time in, you know, from fifth grade to, like, freshman year, we left the church that I grew up in, that my mom grew up in, that her parents grew up in. We left that church, and we were kind of blindly looking for a church. And then we found one, like, junior high or freshman year, and I was very heavily involved in that, um, in the youth group and everything. So then there's also going to a small uh, Baptist church, there is a expectation there too. And I am wild. Not really sure how to describe me. I'm a little out of the box. Uh, I have my own way and my own feelings and my own opinions. And um, when you're a Abrams and you go to church I don't know, 1,700 times a week, like, you can't have your own opinion. So 
I wasn't, um, and that's not, my parents didn't put that on me. Society put that on me. My parents didn't fully put that on me. Society put that on me. So I didn't get to learn who I was until much later in life. So in high school, tell us about the development of your mental health issues and what that looked like for you and what were the symptoms and how did you know things were wrong? So um, I think a really good standout moment, the summer before my freshman year of high school, I tried out to be on drill team um, and I didn't make it. And I was so bummed, like the most bummed anybody could ever be in their life. And I reacted in a way that was really should have been a trigger of like, that's not normal. Like I was like sobbing and wouldn't stop sobbing and like couldn't collect myself and like was depressed for days. Couldn't get over it. It's too hard to handle the distress that you were feeling. Too hard to handle it. I did get a dog out of that situation though. So. (laughs) (laughs) Hey. Dogs are the best, and we here at Mental Park, if you got a dog, that's awesome. We I, love it. I, uh, my dad came to me and was like, what can I do? Like, how can I help you? Like, what can I do to make you feel better? And I said, I want a puppy. And he said, okay, that's fine. Like, that's fine. You can have a puppy. And then, like, three days later, I was like, okay, so where's the puppy? <laughs> when are we getting the puppy? And then I got a dog. He has since passed. But um, so that should have been... That should have shown something. A warning sign. A warning sign. And then, you know, my emotions were very, I really was kind of all over the place. Like, I had no, there was no um, steady for me. Yeah, we were seeing that pattern, because from yeah. you've talked about from elementary school up, we're seeing a pattern of just really trouble regulating those mm-hmm. emotions. Um, and then, so, you know, I was sad all the time. That's That's essentially... The majority of it. My sophomore year in high school, I tried out for drill team and I made it that time. Um, I deeply hated it, but at least I got it. Um, and then that's when I started self-harming um, because at that point I had been feeling this way for so long and I had no idea how to process it. What kind of symptoms were you having? Were you isolating? Did you feel hopeless? Did you feel helpless? Did you feel worthless? What were some of the symptoms that you were feeling? Um, I would say worthless, and I would say all of those except for isolating. I, I'm, I was very social. I was very sociable. I hung out with everybody. If you wanted to hang out, let's hang out. If you wanted to chat, let's chat. But as soon as I went in my bedroom and closed the door, I was a different person. Um, do you think any of your friends that were you were socializing with and hanging out, do you think they noticed anything was off or you were just kind of that? Not a single one of them. Um, was that harder for you, though, when are you knowing that they were such good friends? And then was it hard for you to go wanting, was it hard for you to say, hey, I wish they did know, I wish I could share it with them, or was it something you just did not want to share? Um, I had one friend, her name was, or is, her name is Reagan, um, and we were very, we were very, very close, and we were both going through the same thing, and I don't remember how we ended up opening up to each other, but we were essentially each other's, like, lifeboat in this situation. I think she had other people she talked to about it, but she was really the only person 
there might have been others, but she was really the only person I talked to about how I felt. Um, it didn't, I honestly took pride in the fact that nobody knew because I was doing so good at my job of faking it that nobody knew and nobody could figure it out. And that is exactly what I wanted. We have so many teens out there who are doing that very same thing. And when something happens or they, you know, hurt themselves in some way, we, all we hear is, well, we didn't, we never saw that. They were always happy. They were, they, they can't be depressed. They're always happy. They always look like they're having fun and they don't really understand that that's a mask. Yeah. It's fake. Um, my mom, it's a joke. She's kind of serious, but it's a joke. She says I would be an amazing actress. Like I, I really, the only people at this point in my life are like my core group of girlfriends and my family are the only ones who would figure out something's wrong. Right. And my girlfriends, that's because we've been friends for over a decade. Um, so they know me like in and out, but nobody will figure it out. Even now, like nobody knows. So <clears throat> you're saying this and I'm thinking about it and you, you, you know, handled it great with your friends. No one knew you're, you had this great social setting to where you could just fake it until mm-hmm. you made it. That kind of have feel. And then when you go home, you'd isolate. At what point did you say, Elizabeth, this is just not, this is not working. This is, this is hurting you more than helping you. At what point did you say, I may need to do something about it? Um, so around before I started self-harming, around that time, I don't know exactly what happened, but I ended up, like, somehow, me and my parents agreed that I needed to get on medication. So I went to my PCP, and they put me on, like, probably Lexapro, like, I don't know, something real simple. Um, And then I started seeing a therapist. Um, And I stuck with that for a while, and then my PCP kind of said she's a little bit too much for me to handle. Like, this isn't my forte. Like, this isn't what I'm trained in. You need to get her to a psychiatrist. So I started going to a psychiatrist, um, and he put me on so much. I mean, technically, he didn't. His nurse put me on so much medication. What did that look like? How did you know you were over-medicated? I stopped feeling my fingers, at some point, my, my fingertips went numb. Um, and the thing is, like, nobody that I knew had experience with psychiatry to be able to look at us and say, like, she shouldn't be taking 12 pills a day for her mental health. And, like, my dad was really skeptical. He's a very intelligent man. He was very, very skeptical. But the actual psychiatrist was telling him, no, this is fine. Like, don't worry about it. This is fine. And so he's going to say, okay, like, if the doctor says it's fine, it must be fine. So you looked one way, you know, before medication, where we were having trouble regulating emotions, we were emotional, um, but you still had a range of emotions. What did you look like on the other side of that? Did you feel your emotions? I, did I you was, express them? I was dead to the world. Um, I, I eventually stopped. I worked really hard. I stopped self-harming. Um, but then once the medication started getting, because the thing it would be like, I'd start a medicine and then I, you know, oh, I feel this way. So they'd get me on another meds. Oh, I'm having this reaction. So they'd get me on another bed. Oh, I still feel this way. So here's a fifth med. Like it just, it was adding on. And so going through the next 
couple of years of my life, like I had, I, I had nothing. Like I, I felt nothing. I experienced nothing. Like I was not, but I was still, you know, I was like junior class president. Like I was still going and existing and being involved, but I just, I don't really remember feeling anything for the next several years. Um, and then it finally hit a peak um, my senior year, September 24th, I, uh, attempted suicide, which was a mixture of not feeling enough and feeling too much, which is very hard to explain, but I was emotionally dead, but I was also like, I was so anxious the entire time. I still had a ton of anxiety and I was having panic attacks all the time. I, God, I must have been addicted to Xanax. Like, I was taking so much. They prescribed me to take Xanax, like, twice a day, just all the time. So um, I attempted to take my life. Um, Can I tell the story? Like, I don't want to tell how I did it, but... Please, I I think it's important for people to know the experience you had. Um, So that day, around that time... I was essentially spending at least half the day in my dad's back room in his classroom. Like, I would just cry for no reason whatsoever and then be alone in his back. It was like a storeroom. He was, he's a biology teacher. So it was like a storeroom. And I would go back there and wait until I could be around people again and then go to my thing. And so that day we went, uh, me... And two other girls went to um, Starbucks, and then we went to one of the girls' house, and we, like, hung out and had a good time. And then I went home and, like, had dinner, like, whatever normal night. Took my medicine, got in bed to go to bed. And then I just started spiraling. Like, it was pretty much a pretty normal day. And then I just started, like, the thoughts were just going. Can you describe some of those thoughts? What were you thinking? I honestly don't remember anymore, Um, but it was very, it's very much a lot of, you know, you're not worth it, a lot of, um, I'm taking up too much space in this world, like, there's probably someone else better who could be doing what I'm doing, Um, I am just a burden on all my people that I know, like, it would be easier if I wasn't here, Um, they would all feel better, you know, they'll be happier if they don't have to put up with me. Um, just very much, like, hating on myself in general. Um, kind of like, I'm ruined, I guess. That was a lot of self-talk that I had, is, like, I'm broken, so what's the point? Um, but for the most part, at the time, it was, I'm making things worse for those that I love in my life, it would be easier on them if I wasn't here. You were a burden. I was a burden. Um, and I just kind of broke um, and attempted to take my life. And as I was blacking out, I guess I'll say, I, I called my friend Reagan, who I talked about earlier, and I don't know what I said, Um but it freaked her out, and I hung up, and she was panicked. So she, and it had to be like 2 in the morning. 
she called, she woke up her parents, but they didn't have like my parents' cell phone or my home phone, and I wasn't answering the phone. So they called the, uh, I'm such a millennial, the like people you call to get phone numbers. Information? Sure. Okay. I want to say dispatcher, but yeah. that's, that's who I, that's my company. Like, that's not the right word. Um, they called them and they got our home phone. And at the time, our home phone wasn't working. Um, it wasn't plugged in and it had not rung in like months. It just wasn't working. And it rung that night. And my parents yeah. woke up and uh, found me and took care of the situation, um, and I'm not dead. That is an incredible story, and the fact that the phone rang on that night, that's very powerful. Yeah. That, and, and then your friend yeah. taking yeah. the initiative, which we we hear a lot of, is these, you know, may have a friend that's reaching out for help, but they just don't know what to do about it. Yeah, and absolutely. for Reagan to, to take the initiative to say, I'm really worried about her. Yeah. And, and do you go back and think, she was the one you confided in, too. Yeah. So she... She knew. She knew. Mm-hmm. She knew. So... And then the phone ringing, like you said, yeah, Carla. Amazing. That is amazing. I think if I had called anyone else, they might not have known. Because I don't think I... I don't remember what I said. But I don't think anyone else would have been like, oh, this is an issue. So it's good that I called her specifically. Absolutely. I want to tie a piece back because you were seeing a psychiatrist and I'm assuming that you were diagnosed with major depressive disorder and anxiety. And, um, yes, sorry. Yes, that's it. Okay. And then did you see a therapist along with that? Did you so just I, go to the psychiatrist? I was going to therapy. Um, and then a little bit before my suicide attempt, my, uh, therapist, this is a roundabout way to say the story, but my therapist was in a car accident. And so she had to go to the hospital and like, make sure she was okay. Um, and through that, they found out she had cancer. Um, and it was essentially terminal cancer. Um, and so not long after that, she died. Um, and I didn't, I don't think I've ever really recovered from that. Um, because she was, she was like my best friend. She got me through, some really terrible stuff. Um, but after she passed, I don't think I started seeing a therapist again until after the suicide attempt. Do you think that in addition to what you were already dealing with mental health, you now were in grief and that played a part into what you, the decision you made? Absolutely. Um, I don't think, well, no. Um, it didn't specifically affect me. Okay. Um, my thoughts weren't really on that. It was more on the hating myself aspect, if that makes sense. But without her support, those thoughts grew. Yeah. Um, I think, but in a sense, a lot of the reason that I didn't attempt for as long as I didn't attempt was because I wanted to stay alive for her. Um, I wanted to prove that, A, I could do this, but, B, she helped me do this. Um, Not, like, muddy her name or anything, but I just wanted to, like, be good for her, I guess. 
She was a reason for living. Mm. Yeah. And I didn't have a lot of those. Um, so you hold on to the ones you have, you know. So I'm guessing you got some intensive treatment at that point, some inpatient stay. Um, yes, I went and did inpatient for a week. I hated it very much. It was not a good time. Um, I think that's just because of where I went. We only saw the outdoors once, and I was there for a week. And I just don't feel like that's healthy for someone who's going through what they're going through. Um, but, I mean, I liked the people I met. You know, therapy was good. They took me off of most of the medication that I was on um, and then sent me to a new psychiatrist. No, wait. Hold on. (laughs) I have to think this through. So they changed my medication, and I was there for a week. And then not long after I left, I just stopped taking the medicine um, because I was mad. I was mad that... I felt like the medicine, not that the medicine did it, but, like, the medicine didn't help. Um, And I think that's because I was on so much medication that I wasn't regulating myself anymore, and I don't think the medicine was regulating me either. So I was like, you know what? Screw it. I'm off, which was not a good idea. Do not do that. I would like to firmly say literally never do that. Terrible process. Uh but I did it. So. Yes. We highly recommend not making those choices without the guidance of your doctor. Absolutely. Because and do it slowly and correctly and through the right amount of time. Definitely don't do that. You could have some very adverse reactions yeah. when that happens. And I had them. But I was 18, so you can't tell me much at that point Yeah, as an 18-year-old. This is that period of time where your parents have been able to kind of guide this process, and now you're 18, and you switch over to an adult, and that changes everything. Yeah. Now you're responsible for your medical care. Yeah. And uh, after I stopped, um, I started self-medicating, which was not a good idea. So I was still in high school, um, and I was drunk for a hot minute. I tell people I was, like, drunk the entire second semester of my senior year. Um, And that's just how I got through it. Being drunk, did you feel like that was a replacement, obviously, for the meds that you'd taken yourself off of? What was it, I mean, the transition of being off medication and going to drinking had to have caused just a whirlwind with you mentally? Um, I think that... After going through such a traumatic experience, um, and then all of a sudden, because going off the medication, I was also all of a sudden feeling feelings again that I hadn't felt in two years. Um, it was very, very wild. I, it was just, it was a lot. And I think that the alcohol was... A, to, like, make me more fun because by that time in my life, I had started deciding no one wanted to be around me and no one wanted to hang out with me um, because I'd had, like, a few, like, friendship breakups at that point. And in my mind, I was like, nobody cares about me, so I'll just hang out with these people and I'll make them like me by being drunk. Terrible thought process, but 
here we are anyway. So I thought if I was drunk, people would want to hang out with me. I'd be so fun and cool, like whatever. And I wasn't, so I was like blackout drunk half the time. So people were having to take care of me. Um, but I, I think I was drinking mostly to like just be more exciting than I am, not, not be who I am. You know, like, not be depressed and anxious, just be, like, fun drinking. So, at this point, you still haven't found your identity. Not no. No. Well, tell me a little bit about diagnosis. At what point do you feel like you made a turn? Not until I was, like, 23. Okay, so this is a little later down the road. Mm -hmm. So, from, like, 18 to 20... Um, I was kind of all over the place. I tried to go to college. I hated it. I dropped out. I moved back home. Um, I started like a big girl job and I was doing that. And I had a new psychiatrist at that point and he just wasn't, he didn't listen to me. Um, a lot of it was his nurse would come in there and like take some notes and then he would be there for about 20 seconds and leave. So it just wasn't, there wasn't a connection. Like, he didn't know what was going on because he wasn't talking to me. Um, So I got on medication um, that was for depression and anxiety again and tried that. And then, for whatever reason, I stopped taking the medication again because that always seems like a good idea. Um, And that did not go over very well. Um, And Elizabeth, you don't know how common that is, that people, they're going to a psychiatrist, they get started on a medication, and they don't understand the medication is a process to find the right dosage, the right medication that metabolizes with your body that really helps you. And so they don't feel what they want to feel, or they are feeling different than Mm -hmm. they were feeling, and they don't like it, so they just stop taking the medicines. And what I, I mean, hindsight it wasn't working because I wasn't diagnosed correctly. So I wasn't taking the correct medication. Mm -hmm. So there really was no way. I mean, I probably could have been fine, but there really was no way for me to be fully, you know, stable because I wasn't being fed the correct drugs. Um, It's also really fun to look back now and see all of my manic episodes that I didn't know were manic episodes I'm like, oh, that's a reaction to this because of this and yada, yada. What are some of the contributing factors to getting diagnosed the right way? What do you think was the difference from, you know, your experience with doctors and therapists? And So my current psychiatrist, his name is Grant. I love him deeply. Um, he was the first psychiatrist to listen to me, um, to actually, like, you know, because the, in, the incoming um, appointment is the longest one that you have. And I think we sat there for, like, over an hour just talking and explaining what I've been through and how I feel and what everything is and, you know, my reactions to things and just kind of that kind of stuff. And he was the first one to be like, okay, like, I hear you. I hear what you're saying. Um Let's go from there. And he um, he diagnosed me bipolar, and he also diagnosed me ADD, which 
being diagnosed ADD when you're in your 20s is like t- putting glasses on for the first time. It is, it was one of those things where I was like, oh, I'm, this isn't normal. Like, this is why studying was so hard. And this is why high school was so hard. And this is why, you know, I'm, have my like movement issues and pacing and like small ticks and like verbalizing things, like all that different stuff. It's like, this isn't, I'm not insane per se. Like, this is what this is. And I can take a pill and it, handles all of that which was huge for me because at the time I was going back to college and high school school beforehand was so difficult taking Vyvanse and going to school was a breeze it made everything like oh my gosh I don't know how I did it beforehand I have no idea how I did it beforehand um but being being diagnosed bipolar was It was life-changing because I didn't fully understand anything I was going through. Um, And, you know, I was depressed, but then I would also be so happy. Um, And it didn't make sense to me. Like, how can I be suicidal for several weeks, but then also be, like, over the moon for several weeks? Like, it just didn't make sense to me. You know, I think um, over time we've start, we've accepted depression and anxiety and that people have these and it's, you know, it's pretty common. Mm-hmm. What people don't get is bipolar. Mm-hmm. And when they hear those words, it freaks them it out. freaks them out. Yeah. But what you're saying is hearing those words saved your life. Yeah. And I, um, I don't really get scared by mental health anymore. Um, you could throw any mental health term at me and I'm like, great, here we go. Like, like explain something. Cause for yeah. me, it explains something. And I think that's the like scientific part of my brain. Like I just need to know and understand what is going on and why it is going on because otherwise I'm crazy and I am unhinged, I guess. Um, it just doesn't work because I'm different than everybody else. So I, I don't know if that makes sense, but like I'm okay with being different than everybody else if I can explain why I'm different than everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, like I don't mind, like I am perfectly okay being like one in a million, like that is fine. But I like being able to say, this is why my emotions are a certain way. And I think that is so important. Number one, so many key things I think Elizabeth has shared with us today is one, you know, the fact that you didn't give up on therapist. I think that is so important. You reiterating one doesn't work. You go to the next one Mm -hmm. because you listen to your body. Mm -hmm. It may have taken you a hot minute to Mm -hmm. get to that point, but you didn't stop. Yeah. You listen to your body. Um, and, and I think that that's important for you to tell people that, um, when one therapist doesn't work or you feel like you're on something that's not working, To tell, talk about it, tell them, look, this is not working. I don't feel comfortable knowing they're the expert, but also too, they get their information based off of the patient's reaction. So I think it's so important that you've shared that with, with the audience, letting them know, listen to your body. Don't stop therapy. Mm -hmm. Keep going to therapy. If you don't like your therapist, find another therapist or psychiatrist. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And what's, I think what I try to tell people is, 
yes, the medicine is important, but it's very important that you like and have a relationship with your psychiatrist. Because if you don't, they won't listen to you when you say, like, hey, this medicine's not working. And people are scared of medication. They really are. They're very scared of medication. But there's some situations, and mental health is really important to understand, the medication can be very valuable in the treatment. Yeah. It's not the full treatment. We don't want to over-medicate. We don't want to solve the problem with medication, but it really helps in the treatment process. Yeah. And that leads right into the therapy. And the therapy with the medication balanced correctly is going to be very so helpful. Important. And yeah. I, I tell people often, like, if you're going to do one, you should do both. Um, I mean, if you just need therapy, you just need therapy. But if you're going to go to a psychiatrist, go to a therapist. Like, you you should do both in that situation. Yeah. Um, and people view therapy negatively in a lot of cases. Oh, yeah. You know, I, and, I have dealt with that a lot. And it could just be they don't have the right therapist. Absolutely. And I think it also, there's a huge stigma with therapy because people view it as like, I don't want to, I don't want someone like in my life. Like, I don't want them like involved in, how do you say this? Like, I don't want their like nose in my business. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, I get that. But who are you talking to then? Because we're all going through something. There's not a single person on this planet who is not going through something and doesn't need to just, like, talk to someone. I agree 150%. I think also, too, the way I explain therapy is it's like your car needing the oil change. You have to maintain it. And and therapy doesn't mean you're going through a crisis. Sometimes you're going to therapy just to have someone to listen to you and talk to. Absolutely. And I think just having that alone is like your tuna, mm-hmm. right? So I think it's so important what you just said because it, it's you have to have something that's going to keep maintenance. It's and just self-care. Self-care. At the end of the day. It's great. Yeah. You wash your face every day, just go see a therapist once a week, once a month. Like, I mean, it's a safe space. It's like yeah. they listen. They're your advocate. It's non-judgmental. I mean, you can say and do anything in therapy, and it's your safe space. Yeah. And who doesn't need a safe space, right? right? And if you... I also say a lot, um, if you're going to a therapist, you're starting to go to a therapist, your first your first appointment, it's like a first date. Just treat it as a first date. You're getting to know this person. You're telling them about your stuff. See how they respond to you. If you don't like it, don't go back. Try again somewhere else. Like, you're not going to find your husband on your first date. That would be a terrible idea. If you want to get married, like work your way through until you find the right man or woman and stick with that one. And then if it doesn't work, leave. Like you aren't, you aren't legally obliged to stay with one therapist for the rest of your life. Like you can date around. I don't see why not until you find someone you're comfortable with. Same with psychiatrists. So if in closing everything, one, your story's amazing. And for you opening up your heart, is going to help so many people, Elizabeth. I mean, it is going to allow people to truly relate to circumstances and things that they're going through in life. In closing, what is something, what is one thing or a few short things that you want your audience to know uh, in order to keep going through life? I think something that's really carried me through is the scientific theory that it's not always going to be this way. What is bad is not always going to be bad, and what is good is not always going to be good. There are ebbs and flows through life. 
and it's not always easy to handle the ebbs and flows, but you can. You're stronger than you think you are, and you are more you are more than capable to handle all of this. So you need to be okay with change and accepting change and being sad sometimes and being anxious sometimes and being good sometimes. You just kind of have to be willing to take it and know that you're strong enough for it. I think those are such important messages. And what I really heard you say through this whole speech is be your own advocate. Be an advocate for yourself. Be an advocate for your mental health. I also want to mention out there to all of our listeners, if you are having suicidal thoughts, if you are having thoughts of harming yourself, please reach out to someone that you know that you trust, a family member, a friend, a trusted adult in your life, and make sure you're letting them know how you're feeling and what's going on. If you don't have someone that you feel comfortable talking to, please reach out to the national hotline at 988. We want to thank Elizabeth for sharing her amazing story with us and helping us understand her process of mental health and how she became her own advocate. We want to thank you for tuning into Mental Perk. We hope our talk today highlighted real people working through real issues based on mental health. Our goal at Mental Perk is to make sure every one of you knows you you matter. matter. You're You're never never alone. alone.